The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for September will help you speak God's Word with boldness and love. It's titled, Speaking Boldly, Sharing God's Word Every Day. This new resource is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040. Or find out more about Speaking Boldly at issuesetc.org. Speaking Boldly, Sharing God's Word Every Day by Dr. Ed Grimenstein. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month, 1-800-325-3040. We really take it for granted, especially here in the Western world, that work is considered to be a good thing. We talk about having a career, and that's something that people deeply, deeply value. They work their whole lives from childhood on up to pursue a job, work, and then they, well, they work for years and years and years. The goal there is to retire and reap the benefits of all of that labor. We're just coming off of Labor Day, and we need to stop and say, do all those ideas that we associate with labor and with profit and with capitalism, do they all line up perfectly with Christian thought? And how did Christianity completely, utterly change the way that the world looks at work and labor and vocation? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. On this Tuesday, September the 8th, we're going to talk about the influence of Christianity on labor and economic freedom. Dr. Alvin Schmidt joins us. He's Professor Emeritus of Sociology at Illinois College and author of the book, How Christianity Changed the World. Dr. Schmidt, welcome back. Thank you for having me. How do you explain that Christianity is more and more portrayed as bad for civilization? Well, it's the very opposite is really true. Christianity is not bad for civilization. It's been a great benefit to civilization. The criticism that's often made is based on ignorance rather than on factual knowledge. Well, when one thinks about labor, uh, we in this country, or anywhere for that matter, really have very little understanding about how God and the scriptures and Christianity views labor. We tend to see labor as a toil and burdensome, as a curse. Not at all. Right when God created Adam and Eve, he had them work. Work was not the result of sin. God wanted them to take care of the garden, etc., which required work. When Christianity came to the Roman Empire, what it really happened is that they confronted an entirely different view of work. The Greeks, for example, were going all the way back to Plato, takes us back to the 4th century B.C., and for centuries after that, all the way until Christianity came there in the 1st century A.D., labor was seen as something that was undignified, It was that to be done by slaves, and in fact, that's who did the labor. For example, the Greeks' concept was that labor and work was not for the philosopher kings, those who were called free men. The culture of Greece at the time, of Plato and even after, was for fifths of the population was given to slaves. They were the ones that did all the manual labor. 
when we, for example, think about the many colossal monuments that were built, like the ancient seven wonders of the world, where they talk about the Temple of Diana, the statue of Zeus, the Pharos or the lighthouse, and the pyramids of Giza in Egypt, the hanging gardens of Babylon, they were all built by slaves. In fact, Plato was very critical of individuals who, well, two individuals who had designed a device to understand geometry. He thought that contaminated the whole process. Again, these people were given to thinking. The ideas what counted and mattered. And the products that were made by manual labor were by no means honorable. They were necessary, but they were honorable. The Greeks, for example, would gather in Athens in the comitia where they would discuss things. In the meantime, the slaves did all the work. And along come the Christians in the first century A.D. And they came with a partial influence of the Old Testament that did not see work as something that was sinful and wrong and undignified. In fact, we find in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy where it says, you shall not muzzle the ox that treads out the grain. The New Testament picks that phrase up a couple of times, once in Luke and then later on by Paul. By the way, another reason the Christians looked at labor entirely different, they had Jesus as a role model. He grew up, obviously, we know, in a carpenter's home. In addition to that, they had Paul as a role model for labor or manual work. He was a tent maker. It was customary for Greeks, for the Hebrews, rather, when a individual, along with learning the academic things, they also had to learn a trade. This is why how Paul had become a tent maker. So they had two models. They had Jesus and they had St. Paul, who did not disparage work, but honored it. In fact, Paul later on says that he does not work, should not eat. The early Christians exhibited this view, and they prospered. By the way, the Christians weren't only persecuted because of their ethics and values being different, because they adhere to the values of economic principles, they also financially prospered. This is something that is often not mentioned in early church history. And that, too, made them objects of resentment. Meaning of work, therefore, shifted from what to how and why. And that makes all the difference in the world. Even in the Middle Ages, for example, the Christian church had messed up on that particular distinction. They still put a lot of emphasis on what rather than how and why. And particularly when we come to Lutheran theology, the emphasis is picked up again that what's important is why you are working and how you are working. Your why, you're working for the benefit of your fellow man and because work glorifies God. And that, again, changed the whole economic structure and, in fact, had tremendous influence that we, to this day, benefit from. And so it's another way of saying Christianity was not 
harmful to civilization, but the very opposite. It in many ways gave dignity and honor to work that we, for example, now just on Labor Day again try to capture. But Christianity never appears on the scene uh, how it took for centuries, even in this country, to have a Labor Day that we honor. It is often seen as work as something in and of itself, but that's not how God designed it. And that's not how the Christians understood it either. How does the Christian doctrine of vocation influence how labor was viewed? Well, that's another example. Vocation, the Latin word vocatio, for example, is again, it was seen as a calling that God calls the individual to his occupation, his work. And it's not just work in itself, but there are other stations connected with it. The being a father, being a husband, being a teacher, being a pastor, being a policeman, all of those are vocations that are necessary for God to have his creation continue to function. And that's why, again, work is an honorable thing, and vocation is honorable. It is not just a tedious task that we have to do. So often, I think, I know I myself for years and years never understood this because I had never really understood or had anyone explain it or talk about it. For example, I have never in my many years of ministry, for example, and even before, ever heard a sermon preached on vocation or the meaning of work. It isn't even done on Labor Day. We as Lutherans, even though we have a tremendous background, in my other book, for example, Hallmarks of Lutheran Identity, I have a whole chapter devoted to work as a vocation and how it, again, was tremendously influenced and dignified particularly by Luther. And so it would be beneficial for us sometimes for pastors to preach a sermon on vocation or on the value of work. Many times people tend to think work is just something I have to do to put bread on the table. Well, it's much more than that. It is to honor God, and that's how God wants us to continue to do work that's pleasing in His sight, because without us, really, if you will, yes, indeed, God could keep His creation functioning without people working, but that's not how He designed it, and that's not how He wishes it to be taking place. How did the Christian view of labor eventually produce a middle class? Well, for the most part, but early Christianity, there were, and all through the Greek and Roman era, there were basically only two classes. You had the philosopher kings or the freemen, as I mentioned a little while ago, and the others were the slaves. As I said, 80% of the Greek society was given to slavery. The Roman society was essentially the same. So you basically had only two classes, so to speak. But again, now when Christians came into play and gave dignity to work and created different occupations and different attitudes and philosophy of how work was viewed, more people developed into what we would call a middle class. And basically, again, it's a contribution that Christianity made. It was a byproduct, basically, of the philosophy and the ethic of work that was 
embedded, if you will, in the Christian view of, of work as God designed it. Dr. Alvin Schmidt is our guest. We're talking about the influence of Christianity on labor and economic freedom. We'll discuss the Protestant work ethic next. The Issues Etc., a book of the month for September, will help you speak God's Word with boldness and love. It's titled, Speaking Boldly, Sharing God's Word Every Day. This new resource is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040. Or find out more about Speaking Boldly at issuesetc.org. Speaking Boldly, Sharing God's Word Every Day by Dr. Ed Grimenstein. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month, 1-800-325-3040. Have you ever wondered if your investments could do more? I mean, a whole lot more? This is Rahema Kavuga, Synod Relations Manager of Lutheran Church Extension Fund. When you invest with us, you not only earn a competitive interest rate, but your investment goes to strengthen Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations through low-cost loans and services. To learn more, visit lcef.org backslash invest101. Defending the faith, teaching the truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Bethlehem Lutheran, Parma, Ohio. Faith Lutheran, Waterloo, Iowa. Grace Lutheran, Wichita, Kansas. Lamb of God Lutheran, Papillion, Nebraska. Mount Olive Lutheran, Madison, Wisconsin. Prince of Peace Lutheran, Freedom, Pennsylvania. Shepherd of the Valley Lutheran, Perrysburg, Ohio. St. Matthew Lutheran, Lamont, Illinois. Zion Lutheran, Columbus, Ohio, and Christ the Shepherd Lutheran, Alpharetta, Georgia. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support, Donate, and print the one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the radio, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about the influence of Christianity on labor and economic freedom. Dr. Alvin Schmidt, Professor Emeritus of Sociology at Illinois College, is our guest. Dr. Schmidt, we often hear about the Protestant work ethic. What is it and where did it come from? Well, that's a very interesting phenomenon, right? In fact, in my book, How Christianity Changed the World, I talk about that, and it's been one of the topics in Western civilization, particularly since oh, the early 1900s, when a, a sociologist by the name of Max Weber, who, by the way, died in 1920s, if my memory doesn't fail me, was a very famous sociologist who basically coined that term, the Protestant ethic. He wrote a book on the Protestant ethic, and I might mention it was also interesting that in 1904, when we had the World's Fair here in St. Louis, he made an effort to come to that particular fair, World's Fair. 
And in his Protestant ethic book that he wrote, he, he does refer to his observations that he had found in the United States well, while he was here in, in 1904. By the Protestant ethic, he really misnamed it. It should have been, been called the Christian work ethic. He basically saw Protestant ethic in the light of Calvinistic theology, which in part did contribute to the Christian work ethic, but it alone does not explain it. For example, one of the things that he makes a great deal of, the Protestant ethic, as he called it, gave impetus to Christians condoning the taking of interest money. You know, it's interesting, throughout most of the Middle Ages, all the way to early Christianity, a lot of Christians had a misunderstanding of taking interest from money. It was called usury. Luther himself had problems with it. Calvin, however, differed from Luther in this regard and argued that taking interest from money was not a sinful or wrong thing to do. And Weber picks up on that and said that gave a great deal of impetus to what he called the Protestant ethic. In other words, the growth of capitalistic countries, for example, as basically as in the Western world. So that's basically where that concept comes from. I argue in the book that it should probably have been called the Christian ethic, which takes us back again to what we talked about earlier, that Christians had a different view of labor. It was not something laborious and undignified, but the rather the very opposite was true, and that they had Jesus as a role model, Paul as the role model, and that gave dignity and meaning to the world and made society economically much more advanced and distributed to a lot more people financial benefits, economic benefits that previously were not in existence or that people could attain. How were property rights related to labor? Well, yes, that's another particular thing that we often, as Christians or even as Americans, miss. It was many years of my life before I realized that you cannot have political freedom divorced from economic freedom, the two, and particularly private property. You know, it's very interesting. It's, that philosophy is even embedded in our Constitution in a number of places. In other words, you cannot have freedom without the right of private property. Take, for example, the Bill of Rights, the third article, for example, which most people probably have barely ever heard of. The Bill of Rights, the third article, that gives people the right to refuse the housing of prisoners, which at the time of the American Revolution, the British forced on the Americans. They simply had to house prisoners in private homes. So it was written into the Bill of Rights, the American Constitution, that no one could force you to house people because you possessed that house that was your private property, an item of freedom. It's also in the Fourth Amendment, where, for example, we demand that you 
cannot arbitrarily come and have the police come and search your whole private home. You have to have a search warrant. Another example of showing that economic freedom and private property are closely related. We also have in the Constitution in Article 1, Section 8, for example, where it talks about individuals having the rights of patents and private writings protected. It's another example of what we today call copyright rights, again linked to the person who develops, let's say, a mechanical device, can have it patent under the property rights, and no one else can impinge on it once it's registered. So we have an example there. There's also an excellent book, for example, that was published in 1992. It's by James Eli, E-L-Y, The Guardian of Every Other Right. It's the book wherein he argues that without private property, there is no such thing as freedom. And here I might mention one of the first things that happened in the communist Soviet Union when Lenin became the first dictator, the first thing that he did this was secretly to destroy all property rights exactly because the communist manifesto, which Karl Marx and, and Friedrich Engels wrote in 1848, condemns the possession of private property. And so that particular situation then indicates that communists, as was true in the Soviet Union, as is true in Cuba, as is true in China today, for the most part, people are not permitted to have private property. Go to Cuba, and what private property do individuals have? Barely the shirt on their back, so to speak. Because somehow, if you have private property, you have freedom and in a dictatorial communistic society that cannot be permitted so it's one of the major planks and interestingly today when we have groups in our society like black lives matter a basically a communist new marxist philosophy and other antifa groups even all who oppose private property because they know that that's the only way they can institute or implement their socialistic ideology. It goes all the way back again to Karl Marx. So if you would describe in a little more detail how these individual rights relate to property rights. Well, as I said, for example, you have, again, I'll pick up on the third article of the Bill of Rights, you have your home. I have my home. And not anyone can come into your home. We have laws developed, for example, to protect your property rights. As I said a moment ago, the police can't come and arbitrarily search your home without a search warrant. Again, this indicates you have certain freedom, certain liberties that cannot arbitrarily be overruled or ignored because of some authorities that have a lot of power outside of your private home and your possessions. I have to repeat, for example, that this is something that we as Americans have never really been taught, that you cannot have freedom apart from the right to have private property. And it's not just a house. That's why the Constitution also indicates, for example, patents and 
for example, as an author who writes books, as I myself have done, why do we footnote when you borrow an idea or a thought or a quotation from another person? Because that is considered to be private property on the person who initially wrote it. And if you obey that and ignore it, you will be at least accused of plagiarism, having stolen someone's idea that was his property. But you have now pretended to have it be your property. And that, again, is, comes back to the private property rights. So it very much permeates our, our society, and we have never given it credit and understanding. Most people have never seen any relationship to private property and political and economic freedom. We're discussing the influence of Christianity on labor and economic freedom with Dr. Alvin Schmidt, Professor Emeritus of Sociology at Illinois College. He's also proudly serving as one of the members of the board of directors for Concordia Publishing House. CPH is the publisher of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for September called Speaking Boldly, Sharing God's Word Every Day. It's a manual for, well, getting over your fear of witnessing. Find out more at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. After the break, we'll get Dr. Schmidt's response to the question, is any economic ideology completely compatible with Christianity? Lutheranism in the Public Square. You're listening to Issues Etc. What makes Christ Our Savior Lutheran Church in Freeburg, Illinois, so special? Our new members talk about the family atmosphere, the welcoming people, and the outstanding music. But most importantly, you'll be confronted with your sin and comforted with the assurance that Jesus has removed that sin so that you can live each day as his baptized and forgiven child. Christ Our Savior Lutheran Church is at 612 North State Street in Freeburg, Illinois. Sunday worship is at 9 a.m., Sunday school and Bible classes at 1020 a.m., Call 618-539-5664. Bahama Mama, Ocean Pacific, Paradise Island. Retreat from the heat with a shaved ice snow cone from Tropical Snow in Caseyville, Illinois. It's right across the street from Collinsville High School. Tropical Snow is open weekdays from 1 to 9 and weekends from noon to 9. Premium snow, epic flavors, lots of love. Tropical Snow, across the street from Collinsville High School at 2134 South Morrison Avenue in Caseyville. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Dr. Alvin Schmidt is our guest. We're talking about the influence of Christianity on labor and economic freedom after our conversation with him concludes, Joy Pullman, managing editor of The Federalist, will be alongside. We're going to talk about Joe Biden's plan to reopen schools. Dr. Schmidt, is any economic ideology compatible with Christianity? Yes. I would say capitalism is, in many ways, compatible with, well, for example, there are capitalistic examples in the Bible, the New Testament. For instance, you have the parable of talents. What does that 
it's basically something that's compatible with capitalism. You had three individuals going out and making use of talents. And what happened to the guy who was afraid to invest or to use his talents? So he buried him. What did Jesus, to whom did Jesus honor and reward? It wasn't that guy at all. It was the other people to, who made use of those talents. In other words, it's a type of investment that they did. You also have it, for example, that take the rich young man in the New Testament who was condemned basically because, not because he was rich, but because he, that was his only value in life. That's what the sin he committed. Or we can go all the way back to the Old Testament. Abraham was quite wealthy with his many flocks. So was Jacob. Nowhere, anywhere in Scripture was that ever condemned or disparaged by God or even by the prophets. Yes, you have, for example, Amos, where some of the people were criticized for lying in ivory beds and the like. Again, it was not because they possessed those items, but because that is where their basic values lay, and they forgot the purpose and the benefit that they were supposed to use with the gifts, economic gifts that God has given them. So while Christianity has not formally approved capitalism as such, because capitalism as a system also has many flaws, and so it's more or less somewhat I might use an analogy of what we often hear in our society when people talk about our country being a Christian country. No, it never was and never will be and never can be. If we were a Christian country, we would at least have in our documents the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed. No such thing exists. We were a country or our country that's been greatly influenced by Christian values, but that does not make the country Christian. Similarly with capitalism. There are a lot of values in capitalism that are compatible with Christianity, but just because some of them are does not mean to say everything is compatible with it. For example, the moment you have, even in example of the Talisman Old Testament or, for example, in capitalistic ventures in this country, there is the sin of greed that surfaces. Thinking of Labor Day, for example, had people, for example, really honored and taken seriously that a labor is worthy of his hire, as it says, for example, it said already in Deuteronomy, industry in this country or in any other parts of Europe, for example, would have fairly objectively, honestly paid them decent salaries. They wouldn't have done like in England, taken child labor from age six to eight to work in cold, wet mines and the like. They took advantage of these individuals. That, of course, did not mesh with Christian values. And so what did we have? We had finally people come to the fore, and this is how we basically arrived at Labor Day, even in this country. There was a lot of unfairness. People had to work seven days a week with low pay wages. And so eventually, by 1894, we had President Grover Cleveland sign a bill into law, which in June of 1894 
established what we now call Labor Day. So again, Christianity has certain values that are compatible that operate in capitalism. But we can never equate capitalism with Christianity as such. So does that mean that everything done in the name of capitalism does not necessarily have the approval of Christianity? That's quite right. Yeah, You have to look at each particular claim, so to speak, what the capitalist philosophy is. But at the same time, there is no economic system that gives more freedom to people than does capitalism. But like everything else, can it can be abused and, and often has been. And the problem was, for example, that because of the abuse and people didn't recognize and didn't, that they were doing unchristian things and going all the way back to the 19th century when Karl Marx came up with his Das Kapital, in other words, his major document, and then wrote the Communist Manifesto in 1848, was basically uh, the result of people having abused capitalism, and then you have communists come along that abused it on the other side by taking all the rights and freedoms away from individuals, which, for example, they didn't have in the Soviet Union and to some extent still don't have, and likewise, minimal freedom, for example, no freedom of expression. That's always a key factor. You cannot express yourself freely in China on any item or matter. That's a many times a capital offense, or at least a long imprisonment offense. And so we see again the abuses that happen when, for example, either side ignores the Christian values and the spirit of God that God wanted us to have in work and labor. How is the Christian view of labor related to democracy? Well, again, because basically... If you take the New Testament, the New Testament does not spell out for us to have a dictatorial policy. For example, we have, going back to the early Christians right after Jesus' ascension to heaven, you had to, the apostles had to pick a successor for Judas, Matthias. What did they do? They used the democratic process of casting lots, which is an old-fashioned way of saying they voted on it, and so they had two individuals proposed, and Matthias was the one who was successful in getting the approval from the vote. So there you see, for example, there's an example of democracy and freedom. God gave individuals that particular choice. Democracy, of course, has in many ways today often been idolized, beyond what it really has been or can deliver. I like to think often of Winston Churchill, who said once, democracy is the most evil form of government, but I can't think of any others that's better. And that basically sums it up. But we today have idolized it. In other words, democracy can do no wrong. Yes, it can. For example, a very brilliant French philosopher by the name of Alex de Tocqueville, who visited this country in 1831 for six months and traveled up and down the East Coast and then wrote two monumental books called Democracy in America. And he indicated, for example, the tremendous influence that democracy had in the formation of this country. But, you know, there's also something else that we often forget, and we see it today. 
we have an election coming up, the Electoral College. The Electoral College was a curb on democracy becoming tyrannical. For example, the tyranny of the 51%, the founding fathers did not want that. And this is why, for example, segments in our society today that are clamoring for the destruction of our system in the riots that we see going on in Portland, Oregon, or Minneapolis, or that we saw in Kenosha, basically are to destroy the existing structure of our democratic system. For example, they would want to destroy also, and you've heard it already and you'll hear more, the, the removal of the Electoral College. The Electoral College was designed to prevent the tyranny of a 51% majority. And so, in many ways, it's interesting, too, that the word democracy in American political discussions does not appear until the 1840s. The founding fathers never used it. They never liked it because they saw, for example, what it often did in previous other existing countries. And so they devised what they called a republic. In fact, when the founding fathers met in Philadelphia and had finished the discussion of constitution to be taken to the states to be approved, Benjamin Franklin, who was one of the individuals holed up for several weeks in hot, sweltering temperature of Philadelphia, came out at the end and the public outside asked, well, what kind of government are we going to have? And he said, a republic, if you can keep it. What he meant was you could only have democracy functioning if you operated with values of virtue and not operate with the tyranny of the 51%. And that's unfortunate that our students today in universities have never really been taught. In fact, probably it has been criticized, namely the having the electoral college, but it was designed to have a democracy, but a republic democracy, not a democracy without some checks and balances so that you couldn't just operate with, as I said, tyrannically with 51% and ignored the 49 We will talk about the profit motive and whether it is an unchristian idea with Dr. Alvin Schmidt as we discuss the influence of Christianity on labor and economic freedom. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue our study of St. Matthew with Judging Others, Ask and It Will Be Given, The Golden Rule in the Narrow Gate, False Prophets, and Hearing and Doing. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand at thewordendures.org and on the Lutheran Public Radio app. LCMS Rural and Small Town Mission exists to support and encourage congregations in rural and small town settings. In partnership with LCMS districts, RSTM is uniquely positioned to make a major impact in revitalization support, community engagement and outreach training, congregational partnership development, and worker support through providing and developing resources geared specifically to rural and small town congregations. Check us out at lcms.org rstm or give us a call at our office. We're here to help. Education and edification. You're listening to Issues Etc. 
This is Pastor Donald Jordan welcoming you to Redeemer Evangelical Lutheran Church in Chico, California. We stand upon the inspired, inerrant Word of God and preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Students at Chico State and Butte College are welcome to our college group. Our divine service is at 10 and Sunday school at 9. We are located at 750 Moss Avenue and our website is RedeemerChico.org. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Morning Chapel from Kramer Chapel. Live weekday mornings at 9 Central, 10 Eastern, 8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org. Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. On this Tuesday, September the 8th, Dr. Alvin Schmidt is our guest, Professor Emeritus of Sociology at Illinois College. We're talking about the influence of Christianity on labor and economic freedom. Dr. Schmidt, let's turn to the profit motive. Is that an unchristian idea? No, it isn't, because, as I said, with the parable of the talents, for example, we see that the profit motive was operating there, and so it was not in any ways condemned and something, by the way, this has been an off common argument that the socialists and the communists have made to sort of destroy our capitalistic system. It's basically the profit motive. It's very interesting. Many of the professors and even news anchors who many times receive a capitalistic salary that is, you know, way beyond the average individual working for a given radio or TV station, frequently criticize the profit motive, which is a contradiction, an oxymoron, because they themselves are benefiting from the capitalistic system of the profit motive. And so, again, it's often biting the hand that feeds them. And this is where, for example, the profit motive, again, is often abused. And I could cite many examples of why the profit motive is not in and of itself evil. It is what people do with it that abuses it, like so many other things that we have in life. The use of the things is what's important, like alcohol. Alcohol in and of itself is not a bad thing to have, but as you and I know, it's frequently abused by people in terms of alcoholism, and that's how it is with the profit motive. The motive itself is pure, but the use and the abuse of it is another matter. Some Christian movements have attempted to enact socialism in different forms. Give us some historical examples. Yes, we've had two, for example, that took place in this country back in the 1600s. Again, frequently not mentioned in our history books. We all know about Jamestown, Virginia, where, for example, the British came in 1607 to found a community. And they thought they would do it in a socialistic manner. And so they established what was called a common chest, where individuals would contribute all of their work products 
to the common chest. In other words, they didn't have private property. This started in 1607. It was three, four years later, the place was destitute, given to poverty, because it supported the laggards, the people who didn't want to work. Why should I work if someone else is going to do it? So four years later, a guy by the name of Governor Thomas Dale abolished the common store and granted each individual's occupant 50 acres of land if he cleared it and would cultivate it. And what happened? It didn't take long. They prospered. They raised products for themselves, were able to sell surplus. And a few years later, a similar phenomenon happened in Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1620 when the pilgrims came over to Cape Cod. They, too, established a socialistic common store. And likewise, in a matter of three years, it failed because people didn't do their work. They let a few do it, and the others sat back and enjoyed the benefits of not working. Well, along came another guy by the name of Bradford, and he assigned individual, able-bodied individuals portions of land in 1623, three years later. Before long, the unproductive laggards became productive. Two examples from American history that show that socialism does not work because of human nature, because of sin. It will immediately take advantage of others working, and they themselves pull back, and why should I work? If I get paid the same amount, what not all? And this is exactly what brought down the downfall of the Soviet Union. Christianity does not give, as I said a little while ago, a explicit economic ideology, but it has elements in it of freedom and private property that can never be superseded or, or advanced because the moment you move away from those examples of private property, you begin to have authorities, dictatorial individuals that dictate to the individual what to be done, and then again, that does not work. Christianity does not oppose wealth, but it does oppose the abuse of wealth. This takes us all back again to the rich young man. It was the abuse of it, not the existence of it, that was the thing that was wrong. Why is the Christian concept of time also important for understanding a Christian view of labor? Well, it goes back to the early days of Christianity, basically with the era of monasticism. The monks had established certain sequences of time in a given day that they needed to have some caliber of measuring time. You know, one of the things that took centuries for individuals really to measure time. Basically, individuals were given to a very broad concept of time. You had, for example, American Indians. What process that they used. They would often refer to as many moons. They measured time on the rotation of the moon cycle. The monks, for example, wanted something a lot more accurate. They developed what we call today canonical hours, that 
certain portions of the day you performed a certain religious act that motivated them to devise time devices. And so that's basically, again, another Christian contribution that finally evolved into the clocks that we have to this day. Time is a very interesting phenomenon. We measure it, but at the same time, I also like to think of what St. Augustine once said. He said, I know what time is until someone asks me to explain it. No one has ever been able to improve on that. Just think about it. Define time. We tend to define time by the clock, but that's a reification, or as you would say in German, a Verdinglichung. It's making something that's abstract look concrete and real when in fact it really isn't quite the whole story. Can economic freedom and the dignity of labor exist apart from their Christian underpinnings? No, not really. You'd basically almost have a utopian society. Thomas More wrote a book called Utopia. And today, very often, we tend to think that utopia basically would be a heaven-on-earth kind of existence, where you have no crime, you have no sin, you have no violence. But that kind of utopia, and ironically or interestingly, when Thomas More wrote his book Utopia, it was really a satire. He was really pointing out and you know the word utopia comes from two Greek words, uk tapos, meaning no such place. You can never have a utopia on this earth. Why? Because of sin again. It is sin that fouls up everything. And it fouls up economic systems. It fouls up, for example, other kinds of freedom we have. It fouls up, for example, democracy. It fouls up so-called idealistic form of socialism, it just doesn't work. And so about the best thing, and I come back to Churchill, what I said a little while ago, democracy is a very bad form of government, but I don't know of any better. And even democracy is far from perfect. It has all kinds of problems that we need to constantly be alerted to and not then again destroy the freedom. And at the bottom of it is the freedom. When Christians lose, or any individuals lose freedom, they are no longer in design or what God, God intended people to be free and gave them the liberty, the opportunity to reject that freedom, which Adam and Eve did. And ever since then, we've been ridden with that problem that we tend to abuse God's many good gifts that he has given us one of them being economic freedom that we have been talking about today. Dr. Alvin Schmidt is Professor Emeritus of Sociology at Illinois College. He's author of the book, How Christianity Changed the World. When you purchase this book using the Amazon link at our website, a percentage of your purchase will support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Talk On Demand Archives, and look for How Christianity Changed the World by Dr. Alvin Schmidt. Dr. Schmidt, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Joy Pullman is with us on the other side of the break. We're going to talk about Joe Biden's plan to reopen schools. Stay tuned.
The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for September will help you speak God's Word with boldness and love. It's titled, Speaking Boldly, Sharing God's Word Every Day. This new resource is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040. Or find out more about Speaking Boldly at issuesetc.org. Speaking Boldly, Sharing God's Word Every Day by Dr. Ed Grimenstein. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month, 1-800-325-3040. Did you know that for over 40 years, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries with low-cost loans and resources? This is Rahema Kavuga, Synod Relations Manager of Lutheran Church Extension Fund. Because of faithful investors like you, we've been able to help church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations. To learn how you can get involved, call 800-843-8233. Concordia University Chicago is committed to keeping college affordable for all, and especially for LCMS Lutherans. We have scholarships available specifically for students who are LCMS members. This is Dr. Russell Dawn, President of Concordia Chicago, asking you to encourage your student to check out Concordia Chicago at cuchicago.edu. And if you are interested in supporting these scholarships, please find us online at Foundation at cuchicago.edu. Many Lutheran pastors outside of the U.S. receive little or no seminary education. Luther Academy provides theological triage through conferences, books, and journals. Help support Luther Academy by making a tax-deductible donation at lutheracademy.com or call 260-452-2211. Serving Lutheran pastors to the ends of the earth, Luther Academy, 260 260- 452-2211 or lutheracademy.com Equipping the priesthood of all believers, you're listening to Issues Etc. Common and experience firsthand by sitting down in classes and actually hearing professors. Coming to chapel, which is always the high point of the day, to hear the Word of God and to lift our voices in song. Issues Etc. regular guest Dr. Paul Grimm on why you should consider visiting Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana spend time talking to professors. I mean, there's not a professor here who will not be willing to, to take time, whether it's after chapel during the coffee hour or just to come into one's study and, and sit down and talk for a while, to answer questions, to you know, help them to get a sense of, A, you know, do they want to be a pastor or a deaconess? And then B, is this the right place? And well, maybe C would be the question, is now the right time for them to make that decision? If you've contemplated the vocation of pastor or deaconess, contact Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, 1-800-481-2155, 800-481-2155, or send an email to admission at ctsfw.edu.